Hello and welcome to Japan Explained. In the previous episode, we looked at the origins of ukiyo-e, the development of printing techniques, and the classical period in history of ukiyo-e. We followed the works of a few brilliant artists such as Harunobu, Sharaku, and Utamaro, and ended up in the late 18th century. So definitely check out the previous episode if you haven't listened to it yet. This time. Let's look at ukiyo-e in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Lots of things are going to happen in Japan, affecting all aspects of daily life and culture. And ukiyo-e won't be left aside. The ukiyo-e star of the early 19th century was Kunisada. He started his career drawing tall and slender women similar to the ones on Utamaro prints. Then, inspired by Sharaku, he made some actor prints too. And since the ban on mica was not imposed anymore, they came out with sparkling shiny backgrounds. We clearly see that people still love these two types of prints. Even though ukiyo were also produced in other big cities like Osaka and Kyoto, they have strong connections to Edo, the city populated mainly by men, ravaged by fires, epidemics and natural disasters. Savoring each day as the last was an unofficial motto of the Edo people. Stinging daily life, they didn't spare expenses when it came to entertainment. As I mentioned in the previous episode, if all pleasures of this world are fleeing, they thought, we should enjoy them now. And in the 19th century, ukiyo-e continues to represent the floating world, as it did it from the very beginning. Prints showing the pleasures of the big city life spread and gained popularity far beyond the samurai capital. For people living in rural Japan, they were glimpses of Edo life. Parodies of serious art are also often seen in ukiyo-e. For example, on Harunobu's prints, courtesans ride cranes instead of Taoist immortals. Of course, authorities didn't like all that live-for-today mentality. Splurging in Yoshiwara and wasting time watching kabuki plays was bad enough, and hugely popular prints were promoting it. As one of the main media sources of the time, they didn't only advertise. They'd also parody, inspire, judge, and could easily get political. And while Ukiyo was always subjected to censorship, it gets stricter and stricter, as the Tokugawa government slowly starts to crumble. Actor prints and pictures of beauties were not favored by the government. As regulations make it harder to produce these prints, around 1830s, new genres of ukiyo became popular – landscape, warrior prints, and bird and flower prints. But even though the genres changed, the spirit of ukiyo was not abandoned. As for warrior prints, Kuniyoshi was the master of them. In 1842, during the intensified censorship regulations of the Tenpo reforms, prints of courtesans, geisha entertainers, and kabuki actors were banned. Prints with historical themes were, however, allowed, and so pictures of warriors, historical figures, events, and legends became the main output for many print artists. Kuniyoshi understood that as long as the actors could not be identified, he could try and fool the censors. 
And so he removes the stage from his works and makes kabuki scenes look like they were just the scenes from the tale. Or if it's cats instead of people, it doesn't count, right? Kuniyoshi also created several series of beautiful women in the guise of famous characters of Japanese legends. In 1852, he went even further, featuring the products mostly sea life from different provinces, which he used as a background pictures, within pictures of beautiful women. And as we discussed in part 2 of the Yokai Explained episode, he was also great at painting the supernatural and possibly using monsters as a way to express political criticism. But they are mythical creatures, so that should be okay, right? When it comes to landscapes, two names just can't be avoided – Hokusai and Hiroshige. The man we now know as the great Katsushika Hokusai started his career as an artist of Katsukawa school, making actor prints. The first became recognized only at the age of 40 for a series of picture books called Hokusai Manga, published in 1811. And while manga nowadays means comic books, Hokusai's manga doesn't have a story. Instead, it's an extensive multi-volume collection of sketches. In later years, Hokusai will call himself an old man crazy about art. Well, he's always been crazy about it. In his sketchbook, he draws everything. People in different poses, animals, plants, insects, furniture, tools, everyday objects, the list goes on. And as a person crazy about art and determined to constantly improve it, he experiments. As a young man, he studied Western paintings and we see linear perspective in his works. When new synthetic pigments come to Japan, he is eager to use it in his work as soon as it becomes affordable. This color is known to us as Prussian blue, but Hokusai knew it as Berorin no Ai, as it came to Japan from Germany. The pigment was first brought to Japan in 1829, and the first artist to exploit the color was in fact not Hokusai, but Eisen. In 1830s, the price of Berlin blue went down, and its popularity soared. The dark, opaque blue revolutionized landscape prints, because it allowed for many tones and also could be mixed with other colors. The other benefit of Prussian blue was its brightness, that didn't fade with time. The famous Great Wave, as well as many other seaside views on Hokusai's prints, would be impossible to produce without this paint. Unlike Utamaro and Sharaku, Hokusai progressed with each work. Barely known in his years, he finally gets recognized in his 40s. At 70, he was famous, and his series 36 views of Mount Fuji, started in 1830, became the best-selling series of prints ever. It was in fact so popular that it ended up with 10 extra prints, making it 46 views. But just a couple of years later, one series will become even more successful. That would be 53 Stations of Tokaido by Hiroshige, a young artist still in his 30s. The series was so popular that it was reprinted a few times, and different versions of the prints were made to cater to different customer needs. One of the reasons for such popularity was probably the traveling boom, happening in Japan at the time. In the late 18th century, the main highways of the country, such as Tokaido or Nakasendo, had been greatly improved, which increased commercial traffic and encouraged people to travel. 
This in turn created a demand for the scenic color prints of famous views and prominent places. You needed guidebooks and souvenir postcards and ukiyo prints had you covered. Before drawing the designs for Tokaido prints, Hiroshige made a trip to Kyoto himself. Then, back in Edo, he'd draw not only famous views, but popular restaurants, particularly difficult parts of the road, or services available at each station. Valuable information for a first-time traveler. In 1850s, Hiroshige takes another big project to portray 100 views of Edo. His son-in-law, Hiroshige II, finishes the series as the master dies in 1858. Sadly as it is, none of these great artists lives to see the chaos of the last days of the shogunate and the following rapid modernization of Japan. Their students will do that instead. In 1859, the port of Yokohama will be formally open to foreign trade. Americans, soon followed by British, French and Russians, would come to the city to trade and travel. And Ukiyo artists start portraying them. These pictures of foreigners will be known as Yokohamae. And artists creating them will be faced with numerous problems, for example, how to make foreigners look foreign, or how to draw their clothing. Partly because of these problems, partly because the prints were often produced rather quickly and with little care in an attempt to meet the high demand from the general public, they lack quality, previously seen in Japanese prints. Compositions were often copied from other works, with only minor changes made or with the simple addition of title or explanatory note. Soon, in the major period, artists will be allowed to depict current events. We'll see some great prints showing the Boshin War and scenes from the daily lives of ordinary people that became more and more westernized with each day. But at the same time, wave of westernization causes ukiyoe to slowly decline, replaced by photographs and printing presses. Almost dead in Japan, ukiyoe finds rescue in Europe. Sometimes it even made its way to Europe as wrapping for lacquerware and ceramics. Japanese sellers didn't see much value in colorful prints, using them as we'd use newspapers today to protect fragile items. But unwrapping the goods in the West, people were fascinated by the vibrant colors and unusual compositions of the prints. The Japanese prints offered Western artists a new perspective of art. It doesn't have to be photographic but can be stylized and impressionistic. Rather than trying to create the illusion of space beyond the flat surface of the canvas, it can emphasize the surface instead. In 1867, Ukiyo became a spotlight of the Paris exhibition. The excellence of polychrome printing amazed Europeans, who saw Ukiyo as outstanding works of art. Admiration for the Japanese art and culture soon spread around Europe, giving birth to the Japanese movement. Vibrant colors, strong lines and bold compositions of Ukiyoe captivated Van Gogh. He even painted copies of two works from Hiroshige's 100 famous views of Edo. By reproducing Hiroshige's bold use of foreground and background composition, Van Gogh set out to create a groundbreaking new style of his own. He also had a collection of Japanese prints in his studio and once wrote to his brother, Dear Theo, 
I want to paint this room in a Japanese manner. The shadows and cast shadows are left out, and it's painted in bright, flat tinks like the Japanese prints. In a way, all my work is founded on Japanese art. Finding Japan and Japanese culture fascinating, Van Gogh at the same time didn't understand a single bit of it. He used kanji to decorate his copies of Hiroshige works, surrounding them with an advertisement for brothel in the red light district of Edo. 100 views of Edo also inspired James Whistler. Nocturne, blue and gold, old Battersea Bridge is pretty much a copy of the print Kyobashi Takegashi from Hiroshige series. In an interview published in June 1909, Claude Monet said, If you absolutely must find an affiliation for me, put me with the Japanese of old. The refinement of their taste has always appealed to me, and I approve of the suggestions of their aesthetic, which evokes the presence by the shadow, the whole pile of fragment. Inspired by Ukiyoe, he created a Japanese garden in his home in Chiverny. He turned a small existing pond into an Asian-influenced water garden and added Japanese-style wooden bridge. Then he started to paint the pond and its water lilies. And never stopped. Edgar Degas thought Japanese prints had a cool composition, sometimes cutting objects, people and even the main characters of the painting in parts. He also loved Hokusai sketches and human poses in them and used them in his paintings. Now, Japanese prints began to be collected by connoisseurs and a wider knowledge of them was stimulated by Edmond de Gocon's monographs on Hokusai and Utamaro and works of Professor Ernest Fenelosa, who assisted in making collections of Japanese art for the Imperial Museum in Tokyo. By the turn of the century, large sums were paid for rare impressions. In Japan, by 1905, ukiyo-e prints were replaced by photographs, postcards and newspapers. But following the appreciation in the West in 1910, several publishers start marketing ukiyo-e prints as art. They offered subscription sets. Each month the customer would receive a pack of prints, usually two or four at a time, with some information about the artist's or history of ukiyo-e. The goal was to collect representative prints from each designer and period. Sometimes the packages also included the card, and collecting a number of them, the subscriber could exchange them for a storage case for his collection. The reproductions of this period are somewhat different from the classical ukiyo-e, but in a good way. Being at a higher price point, they were printed on a soft, thick, washi paper with extremely rich colors and the outlines being blacker than was common. Unlike mass-produced prints of the old days, the registration marks on these newer reprints are almost always perfect. They do look like the luxurious art indeed. Around the same time, we see the rise of the new artistic movement, Shinhanga new woodblock prints. As for classic ukiyo-e, its history was over. Slowly, the prints gained appreciation in Japan, and now they can be admired in museums all around the country. Used as wrappers before, now they're carefully protected from the light destructive to the natural pigments, and the discovery of an old printing block is a rare, fortunate and newsworthy occasion. 
a neighborhood of Nihonbashi where many publishing businesses flourished during other times, and where Hiroshige spent the final years of his life got a makeover painting ukiyo-e on store shutters. Colorful original license plates or cars often feature ukiyo-e. In 2020, ukiyo-e even found their way into the Japanese passports. Hokusai's 36 use of Mount Fuji are now used as a background for the immigration stamp pages to prevent forgery. So, 350 years later, they still stay very pop and very contemporary. Now that we've looked at the colorful history of ukiyo-e, I feel like I've got one thing wrong. I told you at the very beginning and then later repeated that a. ukiyo-e prints were not considered art objects, b. making ukiyo-e prints was teamwork. Yes, the name of a famous artist on prints made them sell better, but that's prints that made this artist famous in the first place. I mentioned that and then I followed the same narration as most books on ukiyo-e. I talked mainly about artists and artistic techniques and now it's time to fix that. So, let's have a look at the process of making an ukiyo-e print. First, we need a publisher, as it's his job to find artists, carvers and printers and to pay them to decide what will sell and what is a waste of money. It's also he who finds businesses willing to advertise on prints, be it shops, restaurants, textile manufacturers or just kabuki actors launching a beauty line. When funds are collected, the publisher hires an artist. And first, the artist creates a line drawing in black ink. The sketch goes to the publisher and if he's happy with the result, he sends it to the Shogun's censor. Hoping everything was alright, the paper would receive the stamp of approval. After approval, the foundation picture goes to the cover. He pastes it face down on a block of wood, usually cherry, and carves the outline. The result of his work is known as a key block. The carving for one print was done on a single piece of wood. The size of a block was determined by the size of the tree it was cut from, and so the thickness of the tree was the limit. Larger prints were made by joining prints together, usually as a triptych, but there are examples of 2, 5, 12 or even 20 prints joined as an unfolding album. Cherry wood was used for the blocks as it has very tight grain, allowing for extremely fine lines to be cut in. The covers were often specializing in particular parts of the pictures, like hair or kimono designs, so they had incredible skill. They could carve lines as fine as 0.1mm, or for example, with hairstyles, three hair could fit in 1mm. Sometimes the name of particularly skilled cover was even mentioned on the print. When the key block was ready, a few prints were made with it and sent to the artist who'd now take his brush and no won't color them, but just take them one by one and mark areas that should be colored the same. Returning to the cover, pages marked by the artist will be now carved into coloring blocks. One for red, one for green, one for yellow, and so on. To align all blocks, the cover adds registration marks. Later, when during the printing the paper will be lined up with these marks, the different colors would line up as well. Now, finally, the blocks go to the printer. 
It takes the first block and applies pigment with a smaller brush, then uses a bigger one to spread it evenly. Then he places the sheet of washi paper in line with registration marks and rubs it down with a pressing pad. And I guess you might be wondering here, why rubbing? Isn't it supposed to be printing? Well, in the Edo period, rubbing was printing. Surimono, Benizurie, all these types of putblock prints have one part in common – zuri, coming from the verb suru – to rub into or to print. And the reason for this lies in Japanese washi paper. Made from a mulberry tree, it has extremely long fibers. The printers use the rubbing technique to push water-based coloring directly into these fibers, so when they are finished, there is no ink left on the surface of the paper. The print was produced color by color. For each block, around 200 prints would be produced in one go, and then the block was left to rest and dry. Obviously, that's the ideal scenario. Some hugely popular prints, like the ones of Hiroshige Tokaido series, were massively overused, making lines blind and marking to get loose as dampened wood loses its shape. Finally, if mica powder was to be used, it would be manually applied at the very end, using the cutout form to hide the main image. Then, and only then, the print would be ready to sell. So, as you see, artists got the most fame. But many other people of great skill work to make something as cheap and disposable as Ukiyo-e print. It seems like we are often forgetting about that in the age of mass production. I hope the story of Ukiyo-e will help you to appreciate this art in a way people of Edo appreciated it, but I also hope it'll make you stop for a moment and think about the amount of work and resources going into the items we nowadays treat as trivial or disposable. Please share your thoughts with me on japanexplained.com, where you can also find additional notes for the episode. And talk to you soon. Bye!